Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. As always, as the kids are being dismissed to their classes, please be praying for them that they would hear the gospel today and respond to it. Pray for those that are serving them. They are doing uh, amazing work for the church. Uh, I was actually looking at our numbers uh, of our kids uh, this last week, and um, we have in our church 50 children under the age of 13. 50. That's a lot. Uh, and that is, they are a significant part of our church, and so as they go every uh, week, we just encourage you to be praying for them, and also if you feel led to, to really disciple them, to pour into them, um, there's always opportunities for that as well. Well, it is, uh, it's good to be here. If you haven't been with us the last uh, few weeks, we're in this letter uh, to a number of churches called First Peter, and it's called that because Peter wrote it called First Peter because he wrote a second one. Uh, and so this is, a, you'll find this letter towards the end of the New Testament. And the, the themes of First Peter, we've already seen uh, as the, the theme of hope, uh, living hope, a theme of holiness, what it means to be set apart for God. And, um, and then also this theme of hostility, that being a Christian in, in the world then, just as it is now, uh, brings with it many challenges including suffering. Uh, this God-inspired letter to the churches uh, that, that Peter wrote was spread and distributed throughout the Roman Empire. And there's really this kind of fatherly tone in this letter uh, that Peter writes. And, and, and as he writes these things, uh, I can imagine clearly he's passionate uh, about these churches. He cares about these churches, and, and in such a way that, that he looks at them almost as his sons and, and his daughters, as, as he's getting older in, in years. Uh, I was thinking this last week, as we get close to Father's Day uh, this next Sunday, if, if you didn't know, now's the time to start preparing for that. Um, I, surprisingly, um, people are, the, the dads that have to kind of like help their kids for Mother's Day, they always forget Mothers that do that, they're like weeks ahead. So it's probably already planned. Um, but I was thinking about this idea of, of fatherhood and of passing down um, wisdom. And um, the story, a story came to mind, the story of a man named Steve Gleason. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Steve Gleason and his, his story, but Steve was an NFL football player for the New Orleans Saints. And um, he was uh, relatively young uh, when he found out that he had ALS. And if you're not familiar with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, it's a disease that, that basically affects the body in such a way that everything from the neck down becomes useless. And uh, those that are diagnosed with ALS, usually within two years, um, can no longer feed themselves or walk or even talk. And so Steve, this young, uh, um, strong, top-of-his-game NFL player, gets diagnosed with ALS. And shortly after he gets diagnosed with ALS, his wife says, we're pregnant. And Steve immediately starts to think about his son growing up, never knowing him. And ALS had already started to affect his body and his speech. And he knew that by the time his son was born, he would not be the same person that he was. 
the survival rate for ALS is very small. Um, and so Steve began to record his life for his son. This is recorded in a documentary that I would highly recommend um, called Gleason. Uh, not, not necessarily kid appropriate because it shows some pretty raw stuff. Um, and in this journey, Steve is thinking of his son the entire time. How can I give my son the things that I've learned? How can I impart to him who I am before I lose so much of who I am? Uh, very heartbreaking story, but Steve to this day is still alive. He's fought ALS, and he's become not only a survivor, but his wife and him have had another child since then. And he's become an instrumental voice uh, for those that are battling ALS. So I was thinking about this, and, and I was thinking about um, what Peter's heart is. It's coming across in this letter to these churches. And it's been written and preserved uh, for every church since then. For 2,000 years, this letter has been circulating among the people of God, and the principles and the truths of it are timeless. And these things matter. It, these things matter because it is God who is speaking through Peter then, and he's still speaking to us today. And these things matter because they speak to us specifically, and these things matter because they're true. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 17. If you don't have your Bibles, there are some in the pews. Shortcut to 1048. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that Bible with you as you leave today. So I'm going to pray for us as we look at God's inspired word and ask him to translate it into our hearts this morning. Father, we know that your father heart was coming through Peter's father heart, and it has been passed down from generation to generation. And so as we read these words today, I pray that it would be your words that transform, your words that are received, your words that are remembered and wrestled with, not mine. So Father, would you speak? Would you take a broken vessel that's here on the stage this morning? Would you allow me to convey something of who you are in a way that encourages us and challenges us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, whether you've been with us the last few weeks or you're just jumping in with us uh, today, you know how uh, some, some TV shows, they'll be like, in the last episode, or to catch you up, um, it's important to know a little bit about kind of what has been talked about up to this point, because otherwise you're just reading a snippet of a letter, uh, or it's like a partial text. Um, so these last four weeks really only understand, or makes Today's passage really only makes sense if we understand a little bit of the context of what came before. And so kind of our bridge from last week is the two verses before our passage today in verses 9 and 10. And I would just ask that we would read this together with one loud voice. Would you read it with me? But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is who we are. We are a broken vessels that God has redeemed and transformed and, and God has given a new identity to. And when we think about Christianity, Christianity isn't witness protection, it's witness demonstration. And what Peter is saying here in these verses that we just read is your new identity needs to be known first by you. Don't forget who you are. 
But then out of that identity, tell people about it. Declare the praises of him who has set you free, who has given you mercy, who has reconnected you with God himself. Make sure you do these things. Declare the praises of God. Know the good news. And and the thing is, sometimes in church, especially if you've been going to church for a long time, we nod and smile and go, yeah, yeah, I've heard it before. We we treat the gospel as like, yeah, that first thing that we learned, but now we're past that. But that's not true. The good news of Jesus is something we continually wrestle with because it continues to transform us and free us from our sin. And we wrestle with the good news of the gospel also because the culture around us is opposed to that good news, that there is a supreme being, God himself, that is the sole standard for truth and righteousness and justice. Well, the culture at large doesn't agree with that. And so we need to constantly be reminded of the good news. The good news transforms us. And, And here's the other thing, is there are so many people that have yet to hear the good news. Yet to hear that God himself came down to earth, paid the penalty for their sin so that they might be known by God, freed from their sin, and live life as he intended it for them. I was thinking uh, this coming week is Juneteenth. Uh, and honestly, I think I talk about this every year, Juneteenth, because the, the kind of imagery that is captured in Juneteenth And the connection to the hearing of the gospel is unavoidable for me. Um, For those of you that don't know what Juneteenth is, uh, Juneteenth happened uh, in 1865 in Texas. Um, Two years before, in 1863, uh, the the freedom for all slaves in our country had been secured. Uh, But slaves in Texas had no idea that this had happened. Two years They had technically, legally, by the law, been freed from their slavery, but nobody had told them yet. And so in June 19th, coming up, 1865, Union General Gordon Granger led thousands of federal troops to Galveston, Texas, to announce that the Civil War had ended and slaves had been freed. Approximately 250,000 Texan slaves had no idea that their freedom had been secured by the government. I I think about this as it relates to what Jesus has done for us. Jesus came so that we might be reunited with God, that we might be freed from the grip of sin in our life. And he did this how many years ago? 2,000 years ago. And there are still people today that don't know don't know what Jesus has done to secure their freedom, to bring them peace and hope and mercy. And so when Peter says, hey, you've been changed, your identity has been changed, make sure that you tell people about it, that you declare the praises of God. And this is a timeless, timeless challenge for us. So what happens? What happens when your identity changes, when you go from slave to free? When you go from lost and broken to whole and found, when you go from orphan to son and daughter, what happens when your identity changes? Well, your behavior also begins to change. And that's the context for our passage today. Our identity's changed, and then something else begins to happen. 
First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12 say, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Strong language. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. So after these uh, amazing and transformative identity statements that are found in verse 9, Two more identity statements are found in verses 11 and 12. Do you see them? Now do you see them? Foreigners and exiles. Interesting phrasing, right? I imagine as people are reading this, they go, wait, wait, wait. I'm, this is, I'm from this city. <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, I, I grew up here. I can tell you about the, what that store used to be 20 years ago. and What that restaurant, how many times it's changed. Why are you calling me a foreigner and an exile? What's Peter talking about here? He's talking about in light of this new identity as Christ followers, we no longer quite fit in the culture, even the one that we've grown up in. We no, we no longer are as comfortable and cozy as we used to be. In other words, this world, you still live here, but this world's not your home. Romans 12, 2 uh, says something very similar where the Apostle Paul says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The big picture here is that Christians, as Christians, we're, we're never supposed to get so well-adjusted to the culture that we're cozy and comfortable. For those of you that were with us in our Kingdom Come series, this was a constant theme of the message of Christ that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the reason we pray that is because it's not yet fully being done on earth as it is in heaven. And we belong to a heavenly kingdom. So we're working this out. And, and we, we talked about this some weeks ago. That, that means that we don't fit comfortably in the Democratic Party. We don't fit comfortably in the Republican Party. There are things in our culture that are good, and we can acknowledge those, but there is nothing that is fully good, that is fully holy, apart from a relationship with Christ, apart from an allegiance to who Jesus is. So we are foreigners and exiles in the land, in the culture that we live in. Some of you understand what this means because you moved here from a different culture and a different country and you grew up speaking a different language. You know what it feels like to just, ah, even if you've been here a while, there's still things that are just a little weird about America. And I would agree with you. <laughs> so we get the concept of that, but how does that intersect with our faith? You know, it's always easy to look backward at, at history and, and think how people could have thought the way they did. Could you believe that, that people thought the earth was flat? Somehow people are still thinking, nah, I don't get it, but... How people back then could have done those things. How people could have just gone along with the movements in their culture without stopping to think if the culture was right. Well, enough people believe it, so we're just going to go with it. You know what your mom says about that, right? Everybody's mama said, well, if, if Jimmy's going to jump off the roof, you're going to jump off the roof too? We, we acknowledge that as absurd thinking, yet even Christians fall into that thinking. Well, I don't want to stick out. I don't want to be the only person. What would people think? How would they label me? We are foreigners and exiles in this land. 
saw a movie um, last year with, with Jessica called A Hidden Life. A Hidden Life is a story of a man named Franz, I'm going to butcher the last name, Jagerstadter, who was an Austrian man. And as the Nazis were going to war, he was recruited into the army. And he was okay with fighting for his people, but what he was not okay with was giving his allegiance to Hitler, a requirement for joining the army. He did everything he could to figure out a way around giving that allegiance, but there was no way around it. So he was put in prison, and he was threatened with death, and many men, even in the army, appealed to him, just do it, even if you don't mean it. Just do it. To his last breath, he could not give his allegiance to Hitler. When the whole culture, the whole country said, hey, this is what we're doing, Franz could see things differently. In his own home, his own culture, his own land, he stood out. And it cost him his life. As Christians, we are exiles and foreigners in our own time and our own culture. When the culture shifts its positions on issues of morality, we ought to stop and go, wait a second. What does the holiness of God say? What does the truth of God say about these things? And if need be, not be afraid to stick out. Not be afraid to stand. And we remember that through faith in Jesus, we are, as we read earlier, a holy people. That means we are set apart. When our identity is rooted in Jesus, it is beautiful and powerful, and it is a life-giving thing. But living out our identity means that we will, at times and in places, find that the expression of our Christ-like identity forces us to make a decision. Whether that is true, what, is, what God says is true, is true enough for us to continue to live it out. So again, we're not called to be in witness protection. We're called to be witness demonstration. So as both holy people and as exiles, what is the challenge? The challenge is, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to do what? To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There's really two exhortations in this passage. Um, you know what exhortation is, right? It's a Christian word. <laughs> it means two challenges, two appeals, two, two, what I would say is like two yo's. Yo, listen up. Two exhortations. One inward and one outward. The first one that Peter is appealing to the people is do not give in to your sinful desire. Don't give in to your sinful desire. But why does he say this? So that these desires will cease waging war against your soul. When we give in to the temptations and the desires, what we feel in the moment, what we're hungry for all the time, these things, and we feel it, they wage war against our soul. When we, when we live contrary to how Jesus has called us to live, when we live contrary to this new identity that he's called us to live out, when we give in to those sinful desires, Peter says they wage war against your soul. 
Man, this again sounds like somebody who has lived life, somebody who cares about his children. I've got five kids right now, ages 14 to 2. And I think about their future, my 14-year-old sitting right here. He's closer to exiting my house than he has when he came into my house. And I think about, man, four years from now, what do I want him to know as he gets ready to embark on life? What do I want him to avoid? What do I want him to be strong in? And, and the Bible has all of this wisdom about the, how we are supposed to live out this identity. We see earlier in, in Scripture this, this call to live pure lives. Trust me. Stay pure until you're married. Save yourself for your spouse. Your memories, your mind, your heart, all of those things will thank you. Your future self will thank you if you save yourself for marriage. Trust me. Be a person now of integrity. Make it a habit to be truthful in all situations. Because when you do that, in the future, it will be your first response is to be honest and truthful. And you will have much more peace in your life than you will if you figure out how to just tell people what they want to hear or how to make yourself look better. One of my favorite quotes is from Mark Twain. He says, um, I always tell the truth because that way I don't have to remember anything. <laughs> and so when Peter says, don't give in to your sinful desires, he's saying, this is the best thing for you. But be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Know that this, this way you used to live, it doesn't lead anywhere good. It only tears you up from the inside out. And so the, the call to holiness in this letter, and really in all of Scripture, isn't just some good advice. And it's God's advice. It comes from a holy and righteous God. The one that one day is going to say, this is the standard for righteousness and truth and justice. Did you live up to it? That's the measuring line. And the good news is, for those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus, we have been given his righteousness. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to stumble and fall. But as long as we fall forward into his grace and into his righteousness. We know that when that judgment comes, God will say, you're forgiven. Come into the family. So there's this inward challenge, and then there's this outward challenge. The second yo. Live in a way that nobody can argue with your, the results of how you're living. In other words, glorify God in all that you do. There's a author and pastor named Brendan Manning who famously said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. Imagine he had a lot of churches in mind when he wrote that. Right? We sing the songs, we nod to the preacher, but man, once we leave these doors, do what we want. Now I'm not sure how true this statement is, but what I do think is probably fair to say is that one of the greatest barriers to people believing in Jesus, to coming to Jesus, is people who claim to know Jesus not representing him well. Now let me say this. God is greater than that. He's greater than our sin. But man, 
What wasted opportunities if we say we love Jesus and we don't display that love? This was a concern 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this to the church, and I imagine it's still a concern today. Maybe even more of a concern as we've gotten comfortable in our culture and as we've aligned ourselves with things that we say, hey, these are almost as important as the gospel, like my politics. But they're not. I, I can imagine as he writes these things, as Peter says, man, live in a way that nobody can argue with the end result, that he's trying to think of some examples. Man, what, what, is, what is an example that would resonate with the people that are receiving this letter. They feel like they're foreigners and exiles. They're, there's some hostility that's coming at them for being just being Christians. So I can imagine the quill going down, if that's what Peter wrote with, or was a stone? I'm not sure. And thinking, okay, God, the people are going to need some examples of this. What, what's one? What's an example of how to live in a, in a way that reflects your goodness so that you might be glorified? Here's the first one that he came up with. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What's your initial response to this? Especially this part. (laughs) What's your initial heart response when you read this? I'm going to be honest. Mine is very childish. But do you know how bad they are? (laughs) Do you know what they've done? That's what happens in my household. When one of my kids gets corrected, they go, oh, but you didn't see what my brother did or my sister did before you caught me. It was way worse than what I'm doing now. (laughs) So when I read, like, I'm supposed to submit to every human authority. I'm like, wait, time out. What's the cultural, like, there's got to be some loophole here, something that doesn't apply to my situation. I'll tell you what, in America at least, we live in a much better situation than when this letter was written. So to this movement of people who now claim their primary allegiance to King Jesus, who don't worship the emperor, which was a common practice then, they they don't worship in the pagan temples any longer. They're, They're sticking out in society that Peter's challenge to them is hard. But it's to view these challenges that they're facing in their culture as an opportunity to reflect the goodness of God so that God may be glorified through them. Here's the timeless truth. God wants to be glorified through you. Do you believe that? We often think like evangelism and missions, and those are like the extra special people, right? Like the, they're like the, the professional athletes of Christianity. Only a certain percentage get up to that point. That's not true. 
God wants to be glorified through you. Through the goodness that you live out. Are you a medical worker? And you have a phenomenal opportunity through you, who you interact with to display the goodness of God. Are you a teacher? Are you a coach? Are you a janitor? Everything that we do, we have an opportunity to do it in such a way that people go, wait a second. What's going on with these people? God wants to be glorified through you. And so what Peter is saying, I imagine, is because these people are like, wait a second, we're foreigners and exiles, and people are against us, and so, man, we should organize something. This is pre-Second Amendment right. Like, should, do we have the right to carry swords wherever we want to go? Like, we, we should have these, these abilities to, to organize and to defend ourselves, and if people don't like us, man, we're going we're gonna to fight back. Peter's like, hold up, time out. Let's keep the big picture in mind here. You do that, and God doesn't get the glory. You don't fight back when you're accused of things. People are going to notice that. It's going to make them think you're a little weird even. Be respectful to each other. Love each other. Don't disparage your local leaders. Don't buy into voting conspiracies. Don't disparage the emperor. Be respectful. Love each other. Revere God and honor Nero. He was the emperor in that time. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Nero is infamously known in history as one of the worst, most corrupt and evil emperors in the Roman Empire, having his own family murdered. Eventually, short time after this was written, having Christians dressed up like animals and torn apart for people's enjoyment by lions and tigers. Now, would Peter have written this if that had happened yet? Maybe not. Maybe he would have found another example, but... Nero still was not a good guy when he wrote these words. And so if your political candidate isn't in, the, isn't in office right now, or wasn't a few years ago, and these words are for us, they're a challenge. We really honor and respect those that God has placed in leadership. We'll look at, more, at three more examples next week, but this was the first example given to the church to consider how they might live in such a way that the culture and society around them says, hmm, we think they're weird. We, we, we don't agree with their beliefs. But you know, they're, they're pretty good people. We, we can't really find any issues with them other than some of those things. A couple weeks ago, I was sitting down in my office and a city employee um, came and met with me. He's new to the city, and he's saying, hey, well, I'm going to be focused on this neighborhood, and I want to know what you know about the neighborhood. What's happening here? What are the needs and desires of people that live here? And one of the first things he said, and not a, not a Christian guy at all, but one of the first things he said to me is, you know, if it weren't for the church, nonprofits wouldn't exist. He said the work that churches do in their communities and in their neighborhoods is invaluable. I was like, whoa. Last year, when we were doing our food distribution here at the beginning of COVID, somebody that ran a nonprofit, again, not a church person, said, man, if people only knew the work that churches were doing right now to serve their communities. So the world notices when the church lives out the gospel, demonstrates it 
to the people around them. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's this uh, quote that you may have heard attributed to St. Francis. Preach the gospel daily, if necessary, use words. It's not actually from St. Francis, but it's still a good quote. And this is essentially what we're doing is we're, we're taking a holistic approach. Peter's taking a holistic approach. He's saying in verses 9 and 10, declare the praises of God. Like, tell people about the mercy of God in your life. But also live it out. Also demonstrate it. So it's a both and. That's our call as a church. And it's not that hard. Well, it is hard. But it's not tricky. There's no mystery to it. You don't have to go to seminary. You just have to think, man, what has God done for me? I can tell people about that. Oh, man, what does God have? What has he placed in my hands right now? Is it motherhood? Is it a career? Is it school? Like wherever God has me right now, I can, I can engage with those things in such a way that people go, huh, what is it about you and the way that you're doing those things? And then you, again, have the opportunity to glorify God. So as we close, I just want to emphasize that the context and the order of this text is important. Again, we're, we're plucking a few verses out of a letter the context and the order, though, of what we're talking about this morning is important. Number one, when we place our faith in Jesus, everything changes. Our identity changes. Our outlook changes. Our history and our destiny change. Number two, when that happens, our, we're then starting to be transformed. There's this new identity that, that begins to be imparted to us. My wife and I have adopted two kids. Before they were adopted, their identity was different. Their identity was orphan, was rejection. There was no family, no future, no hope. As soon as they got adopted, everything changed. But it took them a while to figure that out, to figure out what it meant to have brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts and grandparents. It took them a while to hear the history of our family. And so we place our faith in Jesus, but then there's this working out of this new identity. And this, with that comes the living out of the new identity. I remember with my daughter, I mean, she was just two years old, reacting in fear because she'd always been left. She'd always been passed to some new caregiver, moved to some new orphanage. And so when one of us was about to go out of the house, she would freak out thinking, is this it? Is the, are they gone? And we said, no, no, no. Have peace. We'll be back. Nothing is going to happen with you. And so <clears throat> this is the order that we need to know. We place our faith in Jesus. He gives us a new identity. And then we live out that new identity as his sons and daughters. And all of this flows out of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. And just a few minutes, a few verses later, we're reminded of this. And we'll close with this. Fast forwarding to verses 22 and 25, talking of Jesus. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
So if we're only to look at the challenge to abstain from our sin and live good lives without taking into account the gospel, what Jesus has done, we may have some success and be some good people. We may even look outwardly good to the culture around us, but we want to be a church that is living out our identity, not just living out our morality. But let's remember, the foundation of all of this is Jesus. Out of our identity is chosen, holy, special people. It's God's desire for us to continue to have victory over our remaining sin. This sin that only wants to tear our lives apart. This is what God wants for you. Whether you're a Christian that is still being transformed in your identity or that you have not yet said yes to Jesus, he wants you to have victory. He wants you to be whole. He wants to win that war for you, for your soul. And so church family, we want anything good that we do to simply be a reflection of the amazing mercy we receive from Jesus. We just want to be living signposts saying, Jesus, this way, let me show you where he is. Let me show you what he's done. Let me tell you what he's done in my life. So may we be people who display the goodness of God with our lives and declare it with our lips. Later on in this letter, Peter will say, be ready to give an answer to anybody who asks about the hope that you have. May we be that kind of people. Let's stand and pray together. Father, it is oh so simple and oh so scary to think about how we are called to reflect you, called to tell people about you, called to live in this new identity as your sons and daughters. We thank you for your love that guides us the whole way, that, that you're not that, the angry father waiting for us to make a mistake so you can send us into a cosmic timeout, but you are loving and gracious. When we trip and fall, you just simply scoop us back up and say, are you okay? Come with me this way. Keep walking. Keep trying. Stay in touch with me. Know that you are loved. Lord, I'm aware this morning that some people either online or here in person, they're not sure about that. They're not sure if that love is genuine. Maybe because of the experiences they've had with their own fathers or mothers that they've transported onto you. But Lord, we're reminded in the passage we just read that it is by what you, your sacrifice that we're healed, by the wounds that you bore for us in our place, that we can be made right, that we can be free from our sin. And so for the person that's been going to church and hearing the Bible studies and singing the songs for decades, Lord, I pray there would be a renewal of that truth in their hearts. And for the person who is yet to say yes, they, they, maybe they can acknowledge the goodness, but they're not yet ready to enter into the holiness. I pray today would be the day or that they, they would see your goodness for what it is and they would respond to it. And if that's you this morning, we want to pray with you. We want to pray with you after our, after our service. So we, we just ask that you come forward at the end of our service so we can pray for you. It's as simple as that. You just say yes to Jesus, and he says, welcome, son. 
Welcome, daughter. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for you. So, Lord, may we be the church that reflects you both in word and deed in the days ahead. May you do it by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.